As this conference comes to a close this morning, we turn our attention to another kind of faithfulness, faithful to prepare, and that may sound like faithful to prepare a good worship set, faithful to prepare the bulletin, faithful to prepare in practice, and all of that is important, but this is something different. This is our role as pastors, preachers, worship leaders, volunteers, technicians, to prepare the people of God, to prepare your church to suffer and ultimately to die. I don't think of myself as the suffering guy when I have conference talks. There are some people that, by dint of personality or life experience or present circumstances, they just really hit a home run when they're asked to speak on suffering. And certain people that you know their life and their story and what they've been through, and for them to come and to speak on preparing God's people to die, to suffer. There's a, Im- immediately a resonance and a sense of anticipation because you know that this man has something to say because of his own experience. I don't dare claim to have that. I think there is a lesson a lesson, however, for us in this. As we lead God's people in worship, I think it is our tendency, especially those of us who are, well, let's pick an age, 40 and under, we have a tendency to think that what is most important to transmit is our own experience. And we have a tendency to think that what will give our message or our leadership lasting value is our authenticity more than our authority. As I mentioned two days ago, striking that they did not say about our Lord, marvelous that he speaks not like the scribes and the Pharisees, but as one with authenticity, but rather as authority. Now, the two things do not have to be uh, juxtaposed against one another, and I know there's a certain kind of authenticity, you use that word, and you may simply mean this person is, is practicing what he preaches, living out, has a life that's full of integrity, not a hypocrite, really a sense of feeling and affection to what we are saying or leading or singing and all of that's very good. The danger is that we so lead with authenticity or what we mistake to be authenticity or the buzzword authenticity that we think what really communicates to people, what really builds them up is when they sense that we're really, man, we've We've been there, we've done that. But listen, if you're going to lead God's people and the full range of biblical emotions 
and the full range of experiences that come upon the people of God from the highest heights to the lowest depths. If you are going to do that through word, through proclamation, through prayer, through song, you cannot expect that you will have had every one of those experiences prior to leading God's people in it. And what we tend to do is we think, well, I, I only can lead insofar as I'm getting in touch with some experience that I've had. And so the person who's very happy tends to lead very happy. And the person who, you know, talks themselves out of a good day by 7.30 in the morning, I can't believe I'm up. And, oh, they're just so, oh, just kind of melancholy, and when they feel happy a little bit, they just kind of get melancholy again so they can write another song, and oh, I'm, just, I'm just feeling so bad about myself that the Eeyore types lost my tail, you know, and you just, you just, you fall into that, whatever your person, whatever your experience, so I think this is instructive, that whether you say to yourself, well, I'm the, man, I'm the suffering guy. There are people in your congregation who are suffering. And the best stuff we have to offer our people comes not from the weight of our experience, but from the weight of His glory and the truth of the text. I'll just tell you one of the things I'm fearful of for preachers, in my generation, for worship leaders in my generation, fearful that when they are giving their best stuff that's really, you know, really singing and really getting people moved, it is when they are farthest from the text. When they're in the text and they're sort of, it's just sort of, but then they get on a rant about something and and then they get on a story and it's hilarious. Nothing against a well-timed rant or a you know, well-placed illustration or story, but the best stuff, the most meaningful stuff must be coming from immersing people in the text that they might see Christ. And so, you all, whether you are 19 or like I am 36 or you are 76, whether you have had a life filled with suffering or you look and you say, well, I'm well below average on the suffering quotient so far in my life. You are called to lead God's people to prepare them to die well. A lot of churches preparing people to live well. Not as many churches preparing them to die well. A lot of churches want to tell you how you can have your best life now. Less that direct all of their attention that you might have your best life later. Would you pray with me as we come to God's Word? Oh, Lord, by your Word now would you strengthen the weak, bind up the brokenhearted, give sight to the blind, comfort the afflicted, afflict the comfortable, encourage the weary. We ask all this by your Word through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Be reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, this time verses 16 through 18. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18.
hear God's Word. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. I want you to notice in verse 16 there are three parts. Part A, we do not lose heart. Part B, our outer self is wasting away, and part B, our inner self is being renewed day by day. And then you have verses 17 and 18. And here's the question for us. How do you say and how do you lead your people to affirm and to sing and to believe 16a when they are experiencing 16b? How do they say, how will you say, how will you lead them to believe? We do not lose heart. When their experience is 16b, that of the outer self wasting away. Your church will have people every Sunday who are coming experiencing 16b. Some will be very evident. If you gave them that verse, you say, yes, that's where I am. Everyone else is experiencing that whether they realize it or not. How in the midst of outer wasting away can we say we do not lose heart? The answer is in 16c and then in verse 17 and in verse 18. It's because of the truth at the end of verse 16 and verse 17 and verse 18 that despite the predicament in the middle of verse 16, Paul can say joyously the proclamation and the affirmation at the beginning of verse 16. The experience is one of the outer nature wasting away. The outer nature is, to put it most simply, the body. Chapter 5 talks about this mortal tent. It, it, it's that part of us being worn down, beaten up. If you look at chapter 4, verse 7, it's this treasure in a jar of clay. And Paul describes his experience, afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. Death is at work in us, Paul says. Now, I think there was something unique to the experience of the Apostle Paul all of the suffering and the shipwreck and the beatings and the stonings and the imprisonment and the persecution so that in a very real way, he saw death was constantly at his doorstep. And yet, for any of us, we have to realize death 
is at work in us. I don't know if you saw the latest poll. It was a massive study over uh, multiple generations on all continents, massive study which has shown that 100 out of 100 persons die. (laughs) Massive study. The government spent billions of dollars on it. One out of one will die. And we get closer to death with every passing moment. It's not the thought you're looking to, oh, thanks, Saturday morning, great conference, and, but it's, it's true. And our outer nature, wasting away, our bodies get older. Once you sort of crest past, I don't know, 25, 28, 29, I'm sorry, but all the things people say, it's just, and then it starts... It starts going down. I mean, I, I just had a birthday, so I'm 36 now, and watching the, uh, the different playoffs and, you know, all about Tim Duncan, they talk about that guy like, I can't even believe he gets out of bed. What is he, 37? This guy is so old. I can't believe it. He's, he's, he's coming off the bend in the crutches and a boot, and he's taking his liver medicine, and he's... Just, I can't believe it. He's, he's what? He's, he's, he's young. But you see all the, these sports stars, and in their uh, arena, it's just, oh, man, this guy's so old. And I remember when I could always watch on college sports, professional sports, and there were always people that were older than me, and so I could still have these dreams that I might be them. And then, you know, well, I, could, I could probably jump that, that high later. I mean, I just got to... <laughs> And I look back and I can never jump, you know, that high on when he has only one foot. I just can't do it. I'm, you know, I get grayer and slower and fatter and all sorts of things that happen as your body just kind of wastes away. I could give you, you know, I sprain my ankle easily. I got kind of a bum rotator cuff and I, uh, I get... Uh, canker sores, and I have asthma, and so I'm just, uh, I'm just a physical specimen. <laughs> you know, um, the comedian Brian Regan has a, a bit about getting older, and he just says, isn't it great, you know, merciful that most of us, you know, do our dating when we're younger, you know, when you're, you're older, and he says, you know, what do you talk about? So, what prescriptions are you on? Or, <laughs> Uh, got to pull over. I, you know, got to go to the bathroom a lot. So. And he has this great line. He says, you know, when you get to a certain age, you get out of bed in the morning and you, you know, you bang your knee on the, <clears throat> on the dresser and you, oh, you grimace and you pain and you just say, well, that'll hurt forever. <laughs> well, that's not going to get better. People get knee troubles, back troubles, and all sorts of things, just all a sign that our bodies are wasting away. It can happen quickly. It can happen prematurely. It can happen slowly over time, but it will happen. Organs stop working. Joints go. Hearing goes. Eyesight goes. Muscles degenerate. Mind deteriorates. Worst of all, that C word, cancer, just these masochistic cells attacking each other. There are people here and people in your church that feel verse 16 very acutely, their outer nature wasting away. It is not something 
simply in the future, but it is living out before their very eyes. And it is difficult. I don't know if you've ever noticed Ecclesiastes chapter 12. It has a very vivid picture of getting older. It says, remember your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come, which you say I have no pleasure in them. And then it gives all these metaphors for what it's like to have your body break down before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened, the clouds return after the rain, and the day when the keepers of the house tremble, the strong men are bent. So saying you're bending over. The grinders, your, your teeth cease because they are few. You lose your teeth. Those who look through the windows are dim so you can't see as well. The doors on the street are shut when the sound of the grinding is low. One rises up with the sound of a bird. You can't sleep at night. All the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid of what is high. Terrors are in the way. Almond tree blossoms. Grasshopper drags itself along. Desire fails because man is going to his eternal home. It's a picture of the outer nature wasting away, death approaching. Paul knew death was coming. And some of us know it sort of theoretically in the distance, and others here and in your church feel it tiptoeing and then sometimes marching and then sometimes chasing them down. Would anyone imagine from your worship services, from the songs that you sing, that you understand that we will all die? Or would they think week after week, nothing bad is going to happen to these people. They're never going to die. It's just one boom, boom, happy, happy. The one thing we know is going to happen to all of us, death. Okay, the other thing is taxes. Don't want to sing about that, but <laughs> death. What do we do? Do we have the, the lyrics that are weighty enough to sustain it? It doesn't mean that every song is, is minor key. Some ought to be. Because there's also looking triumphantly in the face of death. But do your services ever give the indication that, yes, you are going to die? What are you doing in your church to help your people die well? As a pastor, I've been there on a number of occasions with people facing terminal illnesses, with people in the hospital, and it's at that moment when either you realize they have such a ballast of theological truth, of biblical knowledge, that, and they need all of it to die well, or you realize they have not been well fed. What will they sing? I think there are some newer songs that people will sing, In Christ Alone, Jesus Thank You, some of these great Sovereign Grace songs. But by and large, when I'm gathered around and there's family, and you know, certainly some of us because they tend to be older and what they grew up with, but even with younger people, I, I find what do they want to sing? It's hard to beat great is thy faithfulness, or it is well with my soul, or amazing grace, or a mighty fortress. So don't lose those songs, and as you write new songs, and as you use these new songs, make sure you're giving people songs 
that they will be happy to sing and they will give ballast for their soul when they're gathered around the hospital bed awaiting the death of a loved one. What will they sing when their outer nature is wasting away? Are you losing heart? Some people in your congregation are. Some people, some of my dear friends maybe. I know those who are tempted to lose heart. Certainly Paul was tempted. He had reason to be. We could look in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He talks about his afflictions, about how he is being handed over to death, sharing abundantly in Christ's sufferings, utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. He says, we felt as though we had received the sentence of death. Or we could look in 2 Corinthians 11 where Paul gives this long list of all of his imprisonments and beatings, often near death, three times beaten with rods, five times the 40 lashes, less one, frequent journeys in danger from rivers, from robbers, from his own people, from Gentiles, in danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, in cold and exposure. And apart from all these things, he says, there is the pressure I feel for the churches. And isn't that instructive? I've often took much comfort in that, and so should you. Here's a man who was beaten, imprisoned, in constant danger, five times received the 39 lashes, and when he gets to the long list of it, and he comes to the climax of all that is weighing him down, causing him anxiety and pressure, he says, and then there's the churches. It's hard to be a servant. It's hard to be a pastor. It's hard to be a leader. And Paul knew what it was to face this temptation, to lose heart. You you can tell he's talking to himself. He's preaching to himself because he says in chapter 5, verse 6, we are always of good courage. He says in chapter 4, verse 1, therefore having this ministry, we do not lose heart. And then again, he says in verse 16 of our text, We do not lose heart. He's telling himself, preaching to himself, preaching to his people. Uh, In in that Lloyd-Jones book that uh, Bob gave away, one of the lines that Lloyd-Jones says over and over again in this book and in his other books, says the problem with so many Christians is they listen to themselves instead of preaching to themselves. That is, you're, you're listening to yourself and all your troubles and all your woes instead of preaching to yourself this gospel. Paul has enough faith to not lose heart. Think of what he could have said. He could have said, with all of this, therefore, I cannot go on. I cannot face one more day. He could have said, I am weary to the point of exhaustion. I am convinced my life is meaningless. I see that everything I've worked for has been a waste. I am stressed out, burnt out, cried out. I am scared. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know where I'm going. I'm broken, empty, ready to quit. I have lost heart. Christians feel that way sometimes. And yet Paul finds a way to say, we do not lose heart. What songs do you have 
for the people in your midst who are about to lose heart. What do we say when we are handed over to death every day? How can we say that we do not lose heart when bodies waste away? How do you not lose heart when the only things that seem to be certain in life is that you will die and that your life is not going to turn out the way you hoped it would? And the answer is faith. I mean, oh, come on, I came all this way, and you just described my situation, and you gave the answer, faith. I could have gotten that from Sunday school. Faith. That is the answer, to believe in God's providence and to believe in God's promise of eternal life. Without faith, verses 16, 17, and 18 sound so incredibly trite. You're suffering, okay? Slight momentary affliction. There's a way to say all of this, which is an absolute insult to people. Eh, just keep your eyes on um, heaven. Just keep looking at Jesus. It'll all turn out for the best. All things work together for good. The problem is not with those verses the problem is twofold. The problem is, first, we, we, we are not walking with people, listening to people, hearing people, such that we understand what it means to lose heart. And then second, we're not really coming with the faith that says, this is immeasurably better. See, if somebody just comes to you and says, oh, I'm just... You know, they're absolutely miserable. They've had this terrible loss in their life. And the first thing you say is, God works all things together for good. That, that's, that sounds like a, a, a big stop, a hand. I, I don't want to hear your problems. I don't want to know anymore. I'm not interested in that. You should just realize it's all going to be better. Now, if you sit with them and you cry with them and you ask some questions and you ask some more questions and you tell well, and, and and then what are you thinking here? And what are you feeling here? And what is your faith doing here? And then after all of that, you say, brother or sister, I love you. And you need to believe that all things work together for good. Well, then you've got something. And it's same as we lead God's people, understanding the, the multidimensional aspect of our emotions and where we are in our Christian life. Faith is the answer. But it's not simply, I believe Jesus died on the cross, I'm going to go to heaven. Okay, yeah, you've got to believe all of that, but it's the fight of faith. Why does Paul call it a fight of faith? Because it is a fight when you get to those moments in your life, and you are, you're, you, you will, if you live long enough, you will have those moments, and there are people in your church this Sunday having that moment. They are fighting to believe that what God's Word says is true. Because everything they experience right now, everything they see is saying the opposite. I see three promises here, and I realize that everything I just did was a long introduction, okay, so I'm aware of that. 
I was with uh, at, at Alistair Begg's conference not too long ago in May, and I'd never seen anybody do this, and that was really great. I mean, he just said, eh, we got three points, and the first point is, is going to be really long, and the second point will be a little, but it'll be long too, and, you know, we probably won't even get to the third point. And sure enough, he got to the third point, and he said, well, you're sensible people. Think it out. You'll figure it out. <laughs> well, that's, that's the way to preach. I think we can get through these three points. What do we believe? And what ought we to be praying, preaching, singing in these faith-filled promises? Remember, Scripture says, admonish one another in song. You're teaching. So there's, there's always a vertical element. You're praising God. And there's also a horizontal thing. As you're singing, part of what you're doing is you're listing 20 other people, 200 other people, 2,000 other people right now are singing that they believe this. The rest of this congregation is admonishing me. And they're saying, thank you, Jesus. They're saying, great is thy faithfulness. They believe it. Maybe I should believe it. Three promises. First, we must believe that God works on the inside even as the outside falls apart. That's verse 16. We're dying on the outside, but new life on the inside, being renewed into the image of God. Your body is not like it once was, but your inner nature is becoming like it was before the fall. So your body is not working like it's supposed to, but your inner nature is growing to be what it is supposed to be. That's the way things are. Okay, the body, this, my body's in a process of decay, and inside you are in a process of renewal. And even though I'm not old, I'm older than many of you, I would have a hard time with the prospect of aging if I didn't have this one great comfort. By the Spirit of God, I will be holier. I may be fatter, slower, balder, dimmer, weaker, but I will be holier. And when I'm thinking straight and feeling straight, I say, that's a good trade. I will sin less by God's grace. Won't be so half as dumb. Not half as dumb as I was when I was a teenager. I don't like half as much of you, twice as much as you deserve. I'll look more like Jesus. I'll know Jesus better. In a wonderful prayer in Ephesians 3, we praise to the Father that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded and established in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You want more of that? And, of course, you remember that the, the great Romans 8, 28, that He works all things together for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. And then it goes on, 
Those whom he foreknew, he just, foreknow, he would justify, and then you follow this golden chain, and it's that they might be conformed to the image of his Son. That's the all things together for good. And if that sounds like a lame promise, that is the measure of our immaturity or perhaps even our rank unbelief. Not all things together for good that I'd be like Jesus. Come on. That's so spiritual. It's so glorious. That you might be more like Christ and to know Him in the power of His resurrection. Now, how does this happen? Is there, there's nothing magical about your body decaying. Okay, I, I, don't, I don't see as well. I must love Jesus more. Um, I limp. I have to get up in the middle of the night three times. Okay, uh, I have moles. This makes me holy somehow. No, how, how, does, uh, how does this work? How, how, how do… See, we hear this all the time from people or preachers or books, you know, suffering, and it leads to holiness and suffering and sanctification. And how? Well, think about it. There's several ways. First, you know Jesus Christ by sharing in His sufferings. We serve a suffering servant. No one has suffered more than Jesus. No one will ever suffer more than Jesus. And I don't know how to answer uh, definitively the problem of evil, but I do know that this is probably the best answer, and it is enough. That no greater evil in all the world, no greater injustice ever put upon man happened than that which Jesus Christ experienced. And it is in His forsaken cry that every other forsaken cry takes voice. And so when we suffer, we have this kinship, this, this sweetness with Jesus as the suffering servant to feel His sympathy. You don't have to say, well, when I suffer, God suffers. There's actually an ancient uh, early church heresy, and I think it's still <laughs> heresy. Don't say, God suffers. Don't go to the hospital and say, God feels your pain. You, you don't have to go there. You say, Jesus Christ knew what it was to suffer. If you want a sympathetic high priest, you have one in the Lord Jesus Christ. God, by His very nature, is incapable of suffering. Such, therefore, was the miracle and the majesty and the glory of the incarnation that the one who could not suffer took on human flesh that he might experience human suffering in the person of Jesus Christ, in his life and on the cross. So there is a kinship you have with Jesus in suffering. Uh, Second, this suffering sanctifies us because in our suffering we experience his sustaining grace a supernatural grace wrought in us so that we have a peace that passes understanding. Now, listen, this is, and I think we we get very fearful of suffering, and one of the reasons, I I think we suffer more because, especially in in the States, we think we can avoid it, or can't we get suffering insurance or something, or shouldn't, shouldn't somebody be able to do something so that nothing bad happens to us, and we're so fearful of it. 
And you may know people and you see people and you think, I could never go through what they went through. I could never do it. I could never, how they've maintained their faith. I could never do that. Well, it's almost a guarantee that before they went through it, they thought the same thing. You know, nobody's gone, I could totally suffer like that. I'd be awesome in suffering. There is a grace to sustain you. Don't be fearful. Your heavenly Father knows what you need even before you ask it. And there is a great grace. Whatever deep waters God will ask us to walk through, and we will all walk through them at some point in life, He will give you grace and you will know that peace that passes understanding. And then there's a third element of how, why does suffering renew us on the inside? It's because in suffering we are made to experience Christ's love through his body. I think this is one that is often overlooked, underexplained. God puts us in a church so that when we are afflicted, we can be comforted. And then on the other side, we can comfort those who are being afflicted. One of the graces God means to give you in the midst of suffering is that your spouse will seem sweeter, your friends will seem better, your church will prove to be what the body of Christ ought to be. It's not to say there won't be disappointments. Sometimes that's the most profound effect of suffering is to say, now I feel betrayed. But there will be, there ought to be an experience of the body of Christ in the midst of suffering to say, oh, I wouldn't choose to go through this, but to know the love of this fellowship has renewed me to the core. That's all under point one. That's the first promise to believe, that God is working on the inside even as the outside falls apart. Second, we must believe that the life to come later is incomparably better than the life here and now. This is the heart of Paul's argument, why he is confident and hopeful in the midst of wasting away. The key to sanity and joy in the midst of suffering and approaching death is to believe and feel and know with all our might that there is a heaven and it is more glorious than we can imagine. This text works by comparison between suffering in this life and glory in the next. And we often present each other with unhelpful or at least less helpful comparisons When people are in the midst of suffering, we instinctively go to comparisons, but most of them are less helpful than the one that Scripture gives us. We often do the comparison with possibilities. I know it hurts. could be worse. That's the possibility. Just think of everything that you could be going through. Or we do the comparison with others. Consider, you're still, still doing a lot better than other people. Still people starving in the world, right? Or we do the comparison with what the suffering looks like to us. And so we talk to somebody and we want to say, I think you're making too big a deal of it. I think you need to move on. Or we do comparison with merit. Look, you still have it a lot better than you ought to. Or we have a comparison with the past. Well, I know this is bad, but at least it's not as bad as it was. 
Now, many of those may have a place and a kind of common sense approach. There's nothing anti-Christian, but there's nothing Christian. There's nothing Christian about saying, well, it could be worse. Nothing Christian about saying, well, at least it's a little bit better than it was. Anybody in the whole world can use that as common sense, and so maybe helpful to a small degree. But the best comparison is the one God gives us here. And it's that comparison between present sufferings and future glory. Paul says it's not worth comparing the two. You you, you can't even compare it. Future glory, present sufferings. And I don't say that lightly because some of you may have unimaginable present sufferings. And so for God to say what you're going through right now is not worth being compared to the glory to come, that's got to be a pretty big glory. Not worth comparing? I live in Michigan, uh, all the Great Lakes there. If you've never been to the Great Lakes, they're really big lakes. People come all the time and they think like, oh, my grandma, she lived on a lake and she had a little, you know, that's like a little swamp. Now, these are big lakes. It looks like the ocean. Trust me. Okay? It's the largest concentration of fresh water in the world. So when everyone's thirsty, they're all coming to Michigan. Great Lakes. So I love the Great Lakes. Uh, I'm proud of uh, all the Great Lakes, especially Lake Michigan. Rather go in Lake Michigan than in either ocean for two reasons. No salt, no sharks. Okay? But here's what I give you. I have people sometimes from, met people in California before in Michigan. Like, hey, dude. You know, that's what they sound like, right? Can you go surfing on Lake Michigan? There's like a tornado or something. Yeah, you can. <laughs> so some people do, and they get aboard, and they go out, and they whoo, just kind of drift in. I mean, it has to be like the storm of the century is whipping up out there, just whoo, just blowing this out to really get good good surfing. So if you want to, if you're into surfing. Uh, not, you know, my stereotype tells me that everyone in the state of California is, <laughs> then it's not worth comparing. Okay, you don't, you're not, you know, surfing up the coast here, and then, you know, you're talking about, oh, yeah, man, but sweet, dude, have you ever been to Lake Erie? Whoa. You know. <laughs> they don't compare it. Or... Uh, we're flying back this afternoon to Colorado because that's where we drove out from Michigan to Colorado. That's where my, my wife's family is, you know, beautiful mountains and so all these grand peaks. Uh, not worth comparing to say, we lived in Iowa for two years, wonderful place, and I just, I just got a little chuckle because there would be a sign not too far from where we lived, highest point in Iowa. Just look. I guess we are. I didn't even, didn't even realize he seemed to be breathing fine. And if you get the Iowans and the Coloradians and you talk about their highest point, it's not worth comparing. I was the skiing in Iowa. Yeah. It's not worth comparing, Paul says, like a bucket of sand to the beach, like a glass of water to the ocean. Do you see how Paul's logic works? This is crucially important. He does not downplay the suffering. 
he exalts the glory. He does not downplay the suffering. He does not say, oh, that must not be so bad. You're overreacting. Things will get better next week. Uh, I think you're making a big deal about it. It could be worse. He does not minimize the suffering. See, the, the, the problem, we get, suffering looks bigger than it should. When suffering looks bigger than it should. So what do you do? You either shrink the suffering. Okay? Doesn't really hurt that bad. It's all going to be better tomorrow. And you're shrinking the suffering because it looks too big. Paul doesn't do that. He says, yeah, it looks too big. I'm going to show you something unimaginably bigger. What do you do when you have a flashlight? You want to try to tell people that's not a very bright light. You can try to, try to turn down. You can try to cover it up. Or you can say, try to look at the sun there for five seconds. Just stare right into it. You'd be convinced, yeah, that, that's not very bright. Okay, try, try to light up California with, with this, okay? No, well, let's try this. It's not worthy to be compared. Too often we spend our time massaging the suffering, staring at the suffering, digging around in the suffering, thinking about the suffering, when we should be talking about this massive picture of glory. It's the only way to make the suffering look smaller. And these verses will sound trite and offensive if we have no taste of this glory, as if we're just telling sufferers, hey, get off our backs, move on, as if we're uncaring. But no, we must see and feel more deeply and believe and long for this heaven that these slight, these light afflictions are preparing for us a weight of glory, big, deep, massive joy and glory. This feeling, uh, you, you see, we just get glimpses of it in life. Savoring your favorite food, drinking your favorite drink, laughing with your friends, seeing your wife on her wedding day. Love to be there with the groom. I'm standing there as the pastor, and, you know, he always looks kind of like, you know. <laughs> Most guys today don't even shave anymore for their wedding day. It's just sort of like a little hockey beard or something, and... And then the door opens and, you know, even the, the toughest guy sort of, <laughs> because she always looks beautiful. She's coming down. She's walking like at a pace of a millipede. <laughs> you know that sight? That, that beauty? You, you imagine that? You imagine holding a newborn baby, watching your grandkids play, standing on a dune overlooking Lake Michigan, <laughs> seeing the corn blow in the breeze in July, surfing on the Pacific Ocean, watching a storm roll in from the west, singing and can it be at the top of your lungs, this overwhelming sense of beauty and power and delight and amazement, and you take that joy and you put it all together and you multiply it by two, then four, then eight, then 10,000, then multiply it by infinity, and then you have that day and then another day and another day and another day for a year, a decade, a century, a millennia, forever. 
glory. And right in the middle is Christ in all of his beauty, all of his diverse excellencies, all that he has done for us. Finally, we will see him as he is. And I promise you, you will not think at that moment that you had made too much of him. You will not think at that moment that you had, um, that you should have thought more of your sufferings or your pain. It will just, in the face and the weight of glory. On earth, all joy is fleeting. Food, it's gone, except for here. Um, kids are precious, and they drive you nuts. And on earth, there's anticipation and joy. You ever realize, C.S. Lewis has a wonderful piece on this, that on, on earth, almost all of our joy is in anticipating. You're looking forward to this. Rarely is the thing as good as the anticipation. And we're always waiting forward for this trip and this thing and this meal and this person. Except you get to heaven and you're always looking forward to it. And, and Tuesday's always better than Monday. And Wednesday's better than Tuesday. And Thursday's better than Wednesday. Nonstop, continuous, everlasting glory. When all of these afflictions here are but momentary. Yes, it's pain. Yes, it's brokenness. Yes, it's sadness. And it is, the psalmist says, but threescore years and ten. It's a minute out of the day of your eternal life. How could a good, all-powerful God allow such suffering? Part of the scandalous answer is that by his vantage point, it is not that much suffering. Now, certainly, it feels as much as we can bear and then some, but by the vantage point of eternity, it is not worth comparing. I have, as I said at the beginning, I have experienced... You take kind of garden variety sort of suffering that somebody at 36 would have experienced, and I have that below average. And yet already, I will often have this experience, what I, which, which I would not have had 10 or 15 years ago. And that's a thought, driving my car and it's a perfectly fine day, nothing to complain about. Look at all the blessings I have in life. Yet I will think, oh, Lord, you could come back right now, and it would be a good thing. I hear what's happening on the radio, and I know the pain that's in my congregation. I know the sin within my own heart. See, when I was a kid, I always thought, I know I'm supposed to want Jesus to come back, but ah, after Christmas, please. And when I was a teenager, I know I was supposed to want Jesus to come back, but I want to get married first because I know what, what's not going to be in heaven. <laughs> and, and, but it is so true. The longer you live, you have all this joy, you have all this blessing, and yet you do realize, oh, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Just know heaven is going to be infinitely better. Are you preparing your people for it? Are you prepared for it? Third, quickly, third promise we must help our people see, sing, savor, is to believe that what we can't see is more important than what we can see. 
You can see your clothes, you can see your house, you can see a degree, you can see your health, you can see your body. All of that is transient. What you don't see is eternal, your soul, your inner nature, heaven, God. And there are people in your life, all they see is dying, cancer, wrinkles, aches, pains, divorce, body, life, wasting away, criticism, opposition, disappointment, failure. That's all they can see, and we have to help each other. Say, yes, I know that's what you see, but what lasts is everything you can't see. This is what's so wrong with prosperity gospel theology. If you give people a religion of only what they can see, it is not the Christian religion. The struggle in suffering and death is the fight of faith. It is the fight to believe God's promises. We will all experience pain, but we will not all interpret the experience the same way. See, none of us just experience life. We all interpret what we are experiencing. Why is this happening? Is it by random chance? Is it for a purpose? What does this mean? Where am I going? What is happening? Part of what you're doing in in the whole uh, scope of a worship service year after year is to help people shape their thinking, be renewed by their minds that they might interpret life as God would interpret it. And He wants us to interpret suffering as death as but a slight, light, momentary affliction compared to the glory that is to come. Will you interpret your pain as God abandoning you, as random chance, or as an opportunity to know the strength and the grace of God? At the end of all our hope is the hope that Christ is all we need. So what do we believe? What do our songs teach people about suffering, about death, about heaven, about Christ? When we come to die, I believe that when we come to die, every single one of us has two dominant emotions, and they can either be well-placed or misplaced. I believe for everyone, Christian, non-Christian, we all come to death, two emotions going on, fear and trust. There's the the bad kind of fear. What's on the other side? What's going to happen? Um... I I don't know. Uh, Is this the end? Fear. The Christian has a fear of God, which is the beginning of wisdom. Not that fear, but a fear that there is a God and you stand in awe of Him and you're going to meet Him. And then because there is this fear, there also comes along with that trust. And so people who have this fear often have a misplaced trust. Okay, in order not to be afraid, I will trust that I've been a good enough person. Um, I will trust the spirit of my ancestors. I will trust that I have been sincere. I will trust that I went to church often. I will trust that I'm not as bad as other people. I will trust that God must uh, not, He must just grade on a curve. You just trust. Or you can have the fear of God in a well-placed trust. Not in your works, but in the works of another. Not in self-salvation, but in the real Savior. Not in your family or your education or your wealth, but in Christ alone, His death, His resurrection, life with Him. The great theologian, 
one of the greatest theologians since the Reformation, Herman Bovink. You could read, he's got four volumes, like this big of Reformed Dogmatics. When you title it Reformed Dogmatics, you're just saying, I don't even care if you read it or not. I'm just calling it what it is. <laughs> if you want to, you go for it. Herman Bovink said at his death, my learning does not help me now. Faith alone saves me. That's what you have. Faith to fear, faith to trust that Jesus is enough. What is your only comfort in life and in death? The Heidelberg Catechism asks that I am not my own, but belong in body and in soul and life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And he has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood, and he has set me free from the tyranny of the devil, and he also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head apart from the will of my Father who is in heaven. And therefore, by the Holy Spirit, he assures me of eternal life, and he makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Let's pray.